continuous ketosis, 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year is really dumb. And it's really dumb because continuous ketosis, ketones cannot produce all the fuel you need. In fact, they're horrible for it. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Stephanie Estima. Dr. Stephen Gundry is back again for a second conversation on the Better Podcast, this time surrounding his new book, Unlocking the Keto Code. Dr. Stephen Gundry is one of the world's top cardiothoracic surgeons. He is a pioneer in nutrition as well as the medical director at the International uh, Heart and Lung Institute Center for Restorative Medicine. Um, he did his pre-med undergraduate studies at Yale, graduated cum laude, and then his uh, medical degree from the Medical College of Georgia, uh, after which uh, he began his surgical residency at the University of Michigan. Um, and while he was there, chosen to participate in uh, prestigious research programs at the National Institute of Health. He's the author of many New York Times best-selling books, including The Plant Paradox, The Plant Paradox Cookbook, The Longevity Paradox, The Energy Paradox, and most recently, Unlocking the Keto Code. So this book is a cracker. <laughs> and when I say that, I mean, it is designed to disrupt a lot of what we understand about the ketogenic diet, uh, in particular, what ketones are actually doing. Um, so he starts off in the book and in our conversation telling us why ketones are actually not a super fuel. And he go, we go on to discuss the concept of mitochondrial uncoupling, um, not suggesting that we abandon ketones, but that we want to redefine their role in health promotion, what they're actually doing. So we talk about ketones as a signaling molecule, as an HDAC inhibitor, as a uh, um, epigenetic signaler for mitochondrial biogenesis, mitochondrial uncoupling, and for longevity and lifespan, uh, life extension as well. So we talk about mitochondrial uncoupling. We talk about what ketones are doing. We talk about the loss of kil uh, of thermic, uh, pardon me, of caloric wasting, uh, that we, um, mitochondrial uncoupling produces heat through a process called thermogenesis, which helps with weight loss and vitality and optimal health. We talk about white adipose tissue and brown adipose tissue and something called beige adipose tissue, the different types of fats that we can consume. So short chain uh, fatty acid, medium chain triglycerides and long chain fatty acids as well. 
And we talk about signaling molecules in addition to ketones. So we talk about postbiotics, butyrate, other short chain fatty acids and polyphenols as these epigenetic um, signaling molecules to tell the mitochondria to uncouple. And you'll learn what uncoupling is in our conversation as well. And then we talk about some of these, um, call them chemical uncouplers. Um, we talk about dietary fiber, polyphenols, fermented foods, etc. And then we talk about some environmental uncouplers as well. What are some ways that we can continue to augment mitochondrial function through time-controlled eating, through cryotherapy, heat therapy, um, and all of the different ways that we might be able to, um, to augment and optimize for mitochondrial function. I always enjoy uh, Dr. Gundry, his banter. Uh, he has the energy of someone half his age. And uh, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stephen Gundry. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause. And there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Stephen Gundry, making round two on the Better Podcast. Welcome, Doc. I'm so happy to re-welcome you for your new book. Dr. Stephanie, good to see you again. And we are talking about, as I mentioned, your new book, Unlocking the Keto Code. And I was saying to you in the pre-chat that, man, this is going to be a disruptive book in the, all the good ways that disruption, I think, should happen in the science community. And we're going to talk about all the premises in terms of what you lay out in the book and how we can actually unlock all the benefits of the, you know, the touted benefits of the ketogenic diet without necessarily doing the 80% fat, you know, 10% protein, you know, 10% carbohydrates. So I thought we might start um, with the title of chapter two in your book, which is just, again, so just, I'm giggling because it's so disruptive in such a good way. Um, the title is Ketones Are Not a super fuel. So why don't we start there? Can you explain what you mean by ketones are not a super fuel? Well, I probably have almost every ketogenic book sitting in my library and I've got a bunch of them up there and I enjoy, and I've written about the ketogenic diet for a very long time. It was a part, it's been a part of every one of my books and uh, unlike a lot of health gurus, I love to find out that I'm wrong about something. And unlike a lot of other people, I admit that I was wrong about something. And um, there are some people that despite 20 or 30 years of evidence to the contrary, they still hold to their uh, incorrect belief. But that's uh, anyhow. So most people, including me, were taught and teach 
that ketones came about producing ketone bodies, which are uh, short chain soluble, water soluble fats, uh, came about to enable us to primarily go without food for a considerable period of time and not fall over flat on our face when we ran out of sugar stores, uh, either glucose circulating or glycogen in our muscles and liver. And so ketones were described actually in the 1800s. Um, ketones were thought by uh, professors Veach at, at Harvard and the NIH as somehow a miraculous super fuel that enabled humans, unlike many other people, to go extended periods of time without eating and that we could use ketones to fuel our muscles fuel our brain and Dr. Veach in particular became convinced that this was our superpower. In fact, he, he became very famous. He appeared on Newsweek magazine covers and he actually said that the purpose of humans, we should always be starving uh, because ketones are such a super fuel. And he was wrong. In fact, uh, one of his uh, colleagues, Dr. Owens at, Howard, at Harvard, working with Dr. George Cahill, one of the fathers of ketone research, found in 2004 that even at full ketosis, when we were making tons of these little molecules, only 30% of the energy requirements for the human body could be met by ketones. Huh? That doesn't sound like a super fuel. Uh, so we have to run on free fatty acids and also glucose. In fact, even at full ketosis, the supposed super fuel for the brain, only 60 to 70% of the brain's metabolic needs can be met with ketones. And the brain needs 30 to 40% glucose, even at full ketosis. So that you know begs the question, it, why did we actually think that they were a super fuel, number one? And if they're not a super fuel, and clearly the research is ironclad in humans that they're not a super fuel, what the heck are they doing? And why would we want to produce ketones? And that's what actually spurred me to write this book, because once you actually find out what ketones were, are doing and how they work, it actually opens up huge amounts of possibilities to get the benefits that ketones provide us that we'll go into without all the misery and boredom of an 80% fat diet. And I think uh, I, I want to applaud you because I think that it's it's especially in the scientific community might even make the argument that, you know, at the time that we're recording this in 2022, to change your mind uh, is a great heroic act. Um, and I think that the, you know, you mentioned people are still sort of touting the same party lines like 20, 30 years late. I mean, that to me is more of a red flag. I would expect that as we understand more of the science, that we are going to be changing our minds to evolve with the ever-growing body of evidence that supports it. So I just wanted to uh, just applaud you on that because I think that it's, uh, and particularly, you know, in the ketogenic community, this is something that we hear all the time that 
the brain, you know, like that this is the preferred fuel for the brain for this and for that. And I think, um, I don't think that you're suggesting that we abandon ketones. That's not what you're suggesting at all, but rather to redefine its role in health promotion and how we can use it to our advantage so that you, as you mentioned, we're not tethered to this 80% fat, you know, in some cases, 90% fat, um, which for many people, and we'll talk a little bit about fats today as well, um, for many people, it's just gross. <laughs> like I remember when I was first doing keto, I was like, man, I can't eat this much fat. This is just so unappetizing. Um, so let's talk about what some of the roles that ketones in your discovery through reading the literature and going back in the history books and like re-understanding our or maybe re-evaluating uh, the role of ketones. What are what role does or do ketones play uh, in the body in terms of health promotion? Well, yeah. So, you know, most of us thought that when you're starving, which was the actual, the original discovery of, of ketones were in starving individuals or actually in type one diabetics. And uh, they found out way back in the early 1900s that children who were starved, who had epilepsy, their epilepsy actually got a whole lot better. And people went, well, gee, that's weird. How come that is? And then some researchers from the Mayo Clinic in the early 1930s actually coined the word ketogenic diet, finding that an 80% fat diet could dramatically reduce seizures in epileptic children. And this was before the days of phenobarbital and dilantin. And it was actually quite miraculous. So they, they actually believed that there was something about ketones that um, was really good for the brain, and they didn't know why. So kind of fast forward, we've thought, most people thought that ketones make you an incredibly efficient fat burner. And when you're an efficient fat burner, then you will use up all the fat in your body. Now, let's think about, you know, the, the dictionary definition of efficient, uh, efficient means you can actually get a lot more mileage out of something. And I, I use the example in the book, uh, if I want to be an efficient fat burner, let's call fat gasoline. So if I want to really not use a lot of gasoline in my car, I would get a Toyota Prius and get maybe you know 50 miles per gallon on the so that would be really efficient gasoline burning. On the other hand, if I wanted to waste fuel, if I wanted to be not a good shepherd of the environment, I would buy a Ferrari because that is a really great way to waste gasoline. I will only get eight miles per gallon. Now, there might be other reasons I want a Ferrari besides wasting gasoline, but the point is, if being in ketosis makes us incredibly efficient fat burners, and fat has nine calories per gram, as opposed to carbohydrates and proteins, which have four, then I actually, on a ketogenic diet, if I'm becoming more efficient, ought to gain weight. And in fact, as I point out in the book, I see tons of patients who actually gain weight on a traditional ketogenic diet and they have they can't figure it out because they're efficient fat burners. 
So, in fact, you do not become an efficient fat burner. Actually, it's the exact opposite. It's quite the contrary. And this work was actually done by Martin Bland, Brand, sorry, uh, a PhD who work in 2000, he published a very small paper, and I recommend your listeners uh, re- and viewers look it up. It's called Uncoupling to Survive. Simple as that. Now, the whole premise of this book is mitochondrial uncoupling, and most people have never heard of it. And that's okay, uh, because uh, I'm hopeful that everybody will. So what he proposed was, it turns out that when you are starving, your mitochondria, the little energy producing organelles in most of our cells, become incredibly inefficient at making ATP. And they actually waste huge amounts of fuel, calories. And they literally throw these calories out side doors of the mitochondria. And they go through literally emergency exits uh, and they literally throw calories away. Now, on the surface, that seems like a really bad plan because if you're starving, you would think that you would want to hold on to every last calorie and eke out every last ounce of energy that that produces and become a Toyota Prius, Prius like all of us thought. And Brand said, no, actually the exact opposite happens. And so you go, well, that, that makes no sense whatsoever until you realize that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. And without mitochondria surviving, then guess what? The organism would die. So the mitochondria actually goes through a protective phase where generating energy is extremely damaging to mitochondria, as most of us know, producing reactive oxygen species, free radicals, and producing energy is really costly to the mitochondria. On the other hand, if you throw away a number of the calories in producing energy, you do less damage to the mitochondria. So they actually protect themselves. Now, simultaneously, and this is the why it works, this same process of telling mitochondria to protect themselves makes mitochondria do two other things. It makes mitochondria make more of themselves so that even though each individual mitochondria isn't doing as much work, more mitochondria come online so that each one can compensate for the lack of work that the other one's doing. It's almost like it's uh, you can go a lot farther with um, 10 dogs on a dog sled, each pulling than two dogs on a dog sled doing a lot more work. So that is mitogenesis. So we know that happens. And third thing is we know that when we're starving, mitochondria are told to undergo repair work. So three things happen. The mitochondria literally waste fuel. They do a caloric bypass, as I call it in the book. They make more of themselves and then they repair themselves. And so Jack Brand said, 
No wonder they do this. It is a protective mechanism because if the mitochondria doesn't make it, then the organism doesn't make it. And this is how it works. So it's called uncoupling to survive. And what's fascinating is uncoupling proteins. Uh, there are five uncoupling proteins in the inner membrane of the mitochondria. And surprise, surprise, during normal energy production, 30% of all of our calories are wasted through these emergency exits and never contribute to an ATP production at baseline, 30%. And why do we do that? Well, there's many theories why we would do that just as a baseline. The number one theory that makes sense is when we waste those calories, we generate heat. And we're a warm-blooded animal. Now, it turns out that even some cold-blooded animals, the term is poor, actually still generate heat in their bodies by doing this. But heat generation seems to be the main driving force. In fact, many people have heard of brown fat and white fat. And brown fat is the heat producing fat cells in our body and in smaller mammals. And the reason it's called brown fat, surprise, surprise, is it's chock full with, with mitochondria. And it's so many mitochondria uh, that it actually looks brown under the microscope. And so these mitochondria profoundly uncouple themselves much more than any other mitochondria. And so that's actually how they generate heat. And so when we come back to the, when we, when we think about the role of ketones then, and you talk about this in your book, so the role of ketones, uh, we see them and you talk about, there's like these three conditions where we see ketones in feast, in famine, and then with, uh, you know, individuals that have metabolic dysfunction. And interestingly, you, you talk about the one thing that sort of binds all of these three different conditions together is the presence of carbohydrates. Right. So when you feast, you've had, you know, presumably some carbohydrates, you're going to have, uh, you know, and maybe some fat, you're going to have some ketone production in a in a famine when you're fasting for extended periods of time. And then with individuals with metabolic disorder, of course, we know that they have a very hard time um, accessing their glycogen stores. So they're, we're going to see, so when they're having, they're all, their cells are literally starving. So we're always going to be seeing this, you know, the carbohydrates or this elevated blood glucose, if you will. Um, and one of the things that I, that I think is, is really interesting about this, um, we'll call it this paradigm shift, is that ketones, um, in the with in the context of the mitochondria as you've just as you've just mentioned they stop the pre, the damage from occurring right so they and in the book i would love for you to i would love for you to describe the mito club because i thought that that was such a great way to explain um the way that um uh the way that we uncouple it was a very good visual even for myself who has a relatively robust understanding of the the of the electron transport chain and how things work um but we have, um, when mitochondria are overworked and stressed, ketones can help stop the damage from occurring because if we don't have mitochondria, we don't have life. They can initiate the repair, as you mentioned, and then they can make more mitochondria to lighten, uh, to help carry the load, uh, if you will. Yeah. So talk, explain, if you can, um, the, the way that you did so elegantly in the book, 
this process of mitochondrial uncoupling. Uh, and I would love for you, if you, if you uh, can, to talk about the mito club and like the protons and the bouncers and the uncl- I thought it was so clever. I, w- I would love for you to share that with the audience. Yeah, uh, sim- simplistically, uh, I mean, the electron transport chain uh, is a very complex system of basically changing par- charged particles, protons and electrons and getting them very, very, very excited and moving them from one level of charge to another with the purpose of protons uh, coupling up with oxygen molecules. And there's the Mito Club is, is a hip uh, joint that all the 20, 20-somethings and millennials want to go to. It's where everything is happening. This is where you go to couple up, if you will. And the club is hot, it's steamy, it, you know, there, it's, it's, everybody's jammed in there, everybody's trying to get to the bar, everybody's had too much to drink, and, you know, there's testosterone and estrogen out the wall, and there is a lot of attempts at coupling going on. Now, and so this is the, the mitochondrial membrane, the electron transport chain. Now, there's only one door into the club, And the way it's designed, there's only one exit from the club out back. And there's actually a revolving door at the exit. And there's actually a revolving door in our mitochondria where ATP is generated. And the object of the game is for a proton um, from carbon or hydrogen coupling up with an elect- with uh, oxygen molecule and leaving the back door. And as they leave, they generate ATP. That's how it should work. But the Mito Club is crowded. You can't get maybe to the person you want to. A lot of the electrons uh, end up coupling with some oxygen molecules, and they shouldn't, and that creates oxygen radical uh, species, um, free radicals, and unsavory characters, and there's bottles being thrown, and anyhow. There are bouncers in the club that try to produce uh, calm in this club. And these bouncers, it turns out, are the two only antioxidants that are known to work in mitochondria. One of them, which is a shocker, is melatonin. And there's a lot of interesting findings about melatonin that folks will find in the book. And the other is glutathione. There are no other antioxidants that work in mitochondria. And we thought for years that, well, an antioxidant is an antioxidant, and boy, we just thought it'd take a lot of antioxidants. Nope, doesn't work that way. So the things are steamy, things are rowdy, people wanna leave, and what the Mito Club has done to prevent things from getting out of hand is there are actually emergency exits that people could push over in the case of overcrowding. And these, it turns out, are the controlled by these uncoupling proteins. And literally what it means is that instead of forcing all these electrons and proteins to go through this club to exit the back door, instead, a number of them are allowed to exit through these emergency exits. And there's actually five different emergency exits that have been discovered. Why is all this so important? It turns out that if you look at super old people who are thriving, 
they have far more uncoupling proteins turned on than people who don't do well. Uh, the other thing that is fascinating in the book is kind of a fun fact is there's most of us know a longstanding theory of aging, and that is the uh, theory of, of living, the cost of living theory. And that is generally a smaller animal runs a very high metabolic rate, and that's very costly in terms of damaged mitochondria, and bigger animals run a lower metabolic rate, and so you live longer. And on the surface, that makes a whole lot of sense, except for birds. Birds are extremely small in the scheme of things, and yet birds live an incredibly long time. Uh, strangely enough, a hummingbird in captivity, which has this monstrous high metabolic rate, uh, can live 10 years, you know, little bitty guy. And parrots uh, have been known to live uh, 80, 100 years uh, in captivity. And so why do these very small animals with a very high metabolic rate live so long? Well, it turns out they have incredibly turned on uncoupling proteins and they waste huge amounts of energy. So it, it turns out that producing a high metabolic rate, as long as you're producing it via uncoupling does two things. It protects your mitochondria, you live longer, and you waste a lot of fuel and you actually are quite thin in the process. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. Element T also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. What I found so interesting with this book um, was it seemed to be um, a refinement of your last book that you were on the podcast for talking about the energy paradox. And what you, in the last book, you one of the, the or the three tenants, if you will, that would that influence energy production was being overfed and underpowered, as we talked about um, the mitochondria the mi and the microbiome and what you called chrono consumption and then postbiotics. And in this book, what you talk about is the fab four. You talk about uh, using ketones, but also the mitochondria and the microbiome, their communication with each other via postbiotics, as well as a powerful um, uh, signal, if you will, to uncouple. Can you expand a little bit on the FAB4, so the butyrate, other short-chain fatty acids, postbiotics, and ketones as mitochondrial uncouplers to keep the mitochondria in sort of, you know, first-rate shape? Yeah, so the actually, when I was writing The Energy Paradox, when I got around to talking about ketone production, uh, it became clear to me, uh, after really understanding better how mitochondria work, that uh, my concept of 
what ketones were doing uh, was completely wrong, that ketones weren't some fabulous fuel and that ketones weren't making mitochondria more efficient, they were actually doing the exact opposite. And I, you know, I had to go, wait, wait a minute, no, 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 no. This, you know, this, this makes no sense. And so th this book was going down that rabbit hole. And so ketones actually, their presence tell mitochondria to uncouple, to make more of themselves and to repair themselves. So then you go, okay, if that's what ketones do, are there other substances that do the same thing? And can we look for those other substances for examples of those? And probably the most dramatic example that, um, that I actually was not aware of Back in the 1930s, uh, it was uh, back at, actually in World War II, it was discovered that munition workers in France and Germany were extremely skinny, despite the fact that they ate a ton and they actually ran a temperature and nobody knew why this was until after the war. And it was discovered that the in the process of manufacturing gunpowder and ammunition, there was a compound called 2,4-dinitrophenol. And all I want people to remember is the word phenol. Uh, it's called DNP. And in the 1930s, Stanford researchers said, son of a gun, it turns out that DNP was what was causing these people to lose so much weight. They didn't know why it happened, but it, they noticed that their metabolic rate went sky high. So they actually started selling DNP as a prescription weight loss drug. And over 100,000 Americans in the 1930s took DNP. And it was wild, wildly successful. Uh, if you took a little bit, you'd lose a pound a week. The more you took, you could lose five pounds a week. I mean, just Think about crazy. That, that isn't, yeah, it's crazy. It's a miracle. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, the side effects were that people ran a temperature, sometimes a lethal temperature, and they actually developed thyroid issues and they developed cataracts. And this was before cataract surgery. And a lot of people died. And the FDA, in one of its first official pronouncements, banned DNP, uh, the sale of DNP. Now, you can actually find it on the dark web. But um, so it turns out that DNP, dinitrophenol, was the first known mitochondrial uncoupler. Now, unfortunately, it was too good. And as I talk in the book, there's a Goldilocks place where you want to uncouple some mitochondria, but too much uncoupling results in disaster. You literally lose all power and you die. So there's this Goldilocks space of a little bit. So phenol, where have we heard the word phenol? Hmm. Uh, I've been writing about polyphenols now for 22 years. Polyphenols polyphenols are uncouplers. They are mitochondrial uncouplers. And we now know, as I write in the book, that when we say eat the rainbow of foods, that we actually should be saying eat mitochondrial uncouplers. 
Now, what's really cool is that polyphenols are made by plants. And plants, you generate energy through sunlight, through protons from sunlight. And their mitochondria are called chloroplasts. And they're essentially the same mitochondria, but they are, they are damaged by sunlight, just like our mitochondria are damaged by oxygen. So the very things that we need to produce energy are the very things that damage us. So plants actually manufacture polyphenols to uncouple their chloroplasts, their mitochondria, to protect them from the damaging effects of sunlight. So when we eat the plant polyphenols, number one, those polyphenols in turn uncouple our mitochondria, but there's a catch. We actually don't absorb polyphenols very well, but it turns out our, our microbiome loves to eat polyphenols. They're actually a prebiotic. And the microbiome in turn takes these polyphenols and makes them absorbable compounds that actually in their own right are postbiotics. In other words, these influences come from mitochondria. That's number one. So phenols, polyphenols, who knew? Number two, it turns out that butyrate, beta-hydroxybutyrate beta is the primary ketone that we use, particularly in our brain, and is the best mitochondrial uncoupler. Beta-hydroxybutyrate can be made from butyrate. Butyrate, in turn, is actually a postbiotic that is made by our microbiome from eating soluble fiber. And we know that in a normal functioning human being, about 10% of our energy needs can be met by butyrate alone. And we know that colonic cells actually have to have butyrate to survive. So the more we give our microbiome prebiotic fiber, the more butyrate they make and the more actually substrate we have to make ketones. Butyrate in its own right uncouples mitochondria, sends the same signals that ketones do. Now, here's the other great fun fact. Everybody knows how important fermented foods are you, for you. And we go on and on and on that, you know, you look at cultures that eat fermented foods and fermented foods are loaded with probiotics, those friendly bacteria. Well, I got news for you. Most of them, the probiotics are long left. And if you swallow them, they're probably going to be killed by your gastric acid. But there's no question fermented foods are really good for you. Why? Because it turns out that in the process of fermentation, we make postbiotics that remain in those fermented foods, including short chain fatty acids like acetate, acetic acid vinegar. And who knew that the reason apple cider vinegar is so good for you or balsamic vinegar is so good for you is they actually contain short chain fatty acids that uncouple mitochondria. All comes around. Also, if you look at other fermented foods like red wine, for example, like 
aged cheeses, for example, it turns out that it's the short chain fatty acids in those products that are so beneficial for you. So that's just a couple of examples. Which can start to explain the French paradox as well. Like that's one of the things that I think researchers have always been baffled by. It's like, why do they eat cheese and red wine and they live longer? They have less instances of these chronic lifestyle diseases that we see here in North America as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, the French are really fascinating, but uh, we actually, my editor cut this from the book, but I'm going to bring it up because I think it's so important. Um, everybody knows about the blue zones. I'm the only nutritionist who's spent most of my career living in a blue zone, Loma Linda, California. But we debate about why blue zones are so healthy. But two of the blue zones that get a lot of attention is the mountainous region of Sardinia and also the Nagoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. And uh, there's a lot of hype that these two blue zones eat a lot of grains and eat a lot of beans, and they do. But a very important paper showed that the difference between those two blue zones is the amount of sheep and goat cheeses that these people eat compared to their surrounding neighbors. And in fact, only the mountainous folks in Sardinia have extended lifespan. The folks who live down by the water have no extended lifespan, even though they're eating a lot of fish. The folks up top, there are sheep and goat herders, and they eat a ton of sheep and goat cheese. Same on the Nagoya Peninsula. They eat a lot of sheep and goat cheese. And it's actually those cheeses that are the beneficial effect. And that's another showstopper from the book. It turns out that sheep and goat milk, 30% of the fat in sheep and goat milk are MCT oils, MCTs. Cow's milk doesn't have it. Uh, fun fact, donkey milk has it, but that's beside the point. Uh, so people who are eating lots of goat and sheep cheese, number one, are eating postbiotic short chain fatty acids. But they're eating MCTs. Now, the beauty of MCTs, as most people I think in keto know, is that MCTs are a totally different fat that are absorbed directly from our gut without any carrier molecules. And they go directly to our liver. And in the liver, they directly produce ketones, no matter what. So the point of all this is you could have not that I want you to do this, you could have a fruit salad and have goat yogurt or goat cheese or a tablespoon of MCT oil. And despite that you, the, that you ate a ton of carbohydrates, you would generate ketones from that meal. And those ketones in turn would uncouple your mitochondria. And the point of all the book is, Good grief, we don't have to avoid carbohydrates as long as we know the tricks to uncouple mitochondria that ketones do. And that's unlocking the code. 
So we've mentioned, we've talked about short chain fatty acids uh, made by your gut bacteria when you eat, when you're eating foods high in fiber, we have this postbiotic signaling. We've talked about medium chain triglycerides as a potent, uh, you know, being converted to ketones in the liver, which are direct mitochondrial uncouplers. Could you comment on long chain uh, fatty acids as well? I know that we taught you in the book, you actually go through this in quite a bit of detail, but let's talk a little bit about polyunsaturated fats like ALA, linoleic acid, DHA, EPA, et cetera. Yeah. So one of the things that we have to understand about mitochondria and cellular membranes in general is that these membranes are composed actually mostly of fats and fatty acids. And there are two essential fatty acids that we do not manufacture. Now, the word essential is you got to have them. You have to get them from your diet. And they are linolenic acid and alpha-linoleic acid. Um, Now, ALA is a short-chain omega-3 fat. LA is a short-chain omega-6 fat. Now, recently... Uh, a lot of my colleagues are trying to throw uh, short chain omega-3 and short chain omega-6 fats under the bus as the major cause of almost all of our inflammation. And as I show in the book, they are guilty by association. These things are essential. We have to have them in our diet. Now, you don't need too much of them, but we have to have them. And as I point out in the book, there's a very infamous, famous study in cardiology called the Lyon Heart Diet Study. And uh, this study was done by researchers in France and Greece, and they took people who had had a heart attack and they were randomized to either a low-fat American Heart Association diet or a Mediterranean diet with added ALA that was a basically a canola oil butter. And it was a five-year study. It was stopped after three years because the results were so dramatically in favor of the ALA diet that it was unethical to continue. And, you know, newsflash. So when researchers, so initially it said, well, yeah, of course, the Mediterranean diet has got all these polyphenols, it's got all this other stuff, it's got olive oil. That was clearly why this diet won. But when these researchers did a, uh, a uh, analysis of the factors that contributed to the benefit, at the end, the only factor was the blood level of alpha linoleic acid, ALA, a short chain omega-3 fat. The only factor. So why? Because this thing, as it turns out, is a really great mitochondrial uncoupler. And uncoupling mitochondria and blood vessels, as I talk about in the book, is probably how to prevent heart disease in the first place. So we shouldn't throw these guys under the bus. The other thing that's really important is that long chain omega-3 fats like DHA, like EPA, like DPA, DHA is incredibly important for your brain, but it's incredibly important for your brain because it's an amazing neuron mitochondrial uncoupler that I talk about in the book. And it turns out neurons, their mitochondria, if they're uncoupled, you generate local heat. 
And neurons work best at a very high temperature. And long story short, when we hear about MCT oil improving brain health, ketones improving brain health, it actually isn't feeding neurons. It's actually uncoupling mitochondrial neurons and heating up the neurons. And that actually explains why it works. So we've been talking about, um, maybe we'll call them chemical um, uncouplers, right? We've yeah. been talking about taking in polyphenols and taking in dietary fiber. Um, you talk about fermented foods, you talk about polyamines as well in the book. Yeah. Are there environmental, uh, for lack of a better word, environmental unco- behaviors that we can be engaging in that will help to augment our capacity to uncouple our mitochondria? Yeah. And that, again, getting back to my previous book, uh, The Energy Paradox, uh, Dr. Raphael de Cabo at the NIH, uh, who was the researcher who actually kind of uncovered why calorie restriction seemed to be so effective in promoting longevity. And he proposed correctly and proved that it wasn't calorie restriction that was actually the benefit. It turns out when we calorie restrict animals, we tend to give them their portion of food in a, in a single portion and we put it out. And quite honestly, if you're calorie restricted by 30%, you're going to eat that food very rapidly because that's kind of all there is. And DeCabo, when he looked at the rhesus monkey data that I've talked about a lot, said, you know, I think... It has nothing to do with calorie restriction. I have a thing. I think that it has to do with time restriction of how long these guys were actually eating food and correspondingly, how long they were actually not eating food, how long they were fasting. And he set about proving this in mice. And in fact, he proved that it wasn't the calorie restriction that was the benefit, it was the fact that calorie-restricted mice ate their food very quickly and fasted a very long time. And it was the fasting period that was the benefit. Now, why is that? Well, as I go to in the book, normally, when we stop eating, about eight to 12 hours later, we begin generating ketones as we run out of glucose and as we run out of glycogen stores. And so ketones start appearing about six, uh, eight to 12 hours after we eat. And they're really revved up about 12 hours. So DeCombo proposed that the benefit of time-restricted eating was that you had a longer window in a 24-hour period of producing ketones, and you would have a longer window for those ketones to uncouple your mitochondria, tell your mitochondria to make more of themselves and to tell the mitochondria to repair themselves. And when you start looking at it that way, it shows how profoundly powerful time-restricted eating, time-controlled eating, intermittent fasting is, when you look at it in the window of the benefit of ketones uncoupling mitochondria. And it's when I kind of looked at his data over and over again, it was just like, holy cow, no, you know, of course this is how it works. Here's the mechanism and it's uncoupling mitochondria. 
So we want to be practicing. Number one, time-restricted eating. And what is your best recommendation um, around what the ideal aim, you know, what the ideal fasting window, if you will, and eating window should be? Yeah, Dr. Matheson and his colleagues have made a good argument that probably a six-hour eating window may be the best. There have been some four-hour eating windows in humans that have not shown much additional benefit. As many people know, during the winter, I eat all my calories in a two-hour window for six months uh, during the week. And I've done that now for 22 years, entering my 23rd year of doing it. But the the point of all that is uh, that continuous ketosis, 24 hours, seven days a week, 365 days a year is really dumb. And it's really dumb because continuous ketosis Ketones cannot produce all the fuel you need. In fact, they're horrible for it. And continuous ketosis tells mitochondria to protect themselves at all costs and to stop making muscle protein. And number two, to actually produce insulin resistance so the muscles don't steal any of the glucose that the brain needs. And that explains why so many, you know, hardcore keto dieters are running high glucose levels. And actually when we measure them, they have insulin resistance and they go, that's impossible. You know, I'm perfect. And in fact, you can prove that this is what would happen. So use it or or lose it, right? If you're not using the insulin because you've been chronically restricting the carbohydrate, that's what the body's going to say. Well, we don't need this insulin. We don't need these insulin receptors or we don't need the sensitization for them to be so, so great. So I've seen that clinically as well, where long-term keto, we see a lot that can be overcome with a carbohydrate bolus, but we see very much an insulin resistant state with long-term ketosis. Yeah. And that's actually why on the weekends I, I break my, you know, my two hour eating window just to, you know, read recoup. Lovely. Uh, so that's, so that's one of them. The other thing I, I talk about, so it turns out cold therapy, uh, cold is actually incredibly powerful mitochondrial uncoupler and cold therapy actually juices your brown fat to uncouple and the more you uncouple your mitochondria again believe it or not the more short and long-term benefit now similarly it turns out that wim hoff and his colleagues who practice breath holding to tolerate cold, the reason breath holding is so effective is that CO2 goes up during breath holding and CO2 is actually a phenomenal mitochondrial uncoupler. And it actually shows why people who are profoundly good at breath holding, like Buddhist monks, like Wim Hof, can actually melt snow, can actually dry a wet towel on their back because they can actually uncouple their mitochondria dramatically by increasing their CO2s. And this is also where we can begin to switch the type of fat as well by using cryotherapy, correct? Like you talked, we touched a little bit earlier in the hour on bat and wat. So like brown adipose tissue um, and white adipose tissue, but this is also a way for us to 
convert because that white adipose tissue, we previously thought it was just like this stuff you pinch and it jiggles and we hate it, but it can, (laughs) and it is relatively metabolically inert, but as you are exposing your fat, and maybe you can expand on this, um, how we can, we can be converting the two types within, uh, to each other. Yeah. The really exciting discovery is that there's a third type of fat that's called beige fat and beige fat is white fat fat that is converting to brown fat. And the reason it's beige is it has a whole lot more mitochondria than white fat. And so all of these factors, whether it's cold, cold exposure, whether it's hot exposure, whether it's breath holding, whether it's, exposure to polyphenols, exposure to ketones, all of these produce more beige fat. And the more beige fat we have, the more, believe it or not, we do a caloric bypass on the food we eat. And just because it'll come up eventually, one of the reasons smokers uh, have, in general, are so skinny, is that nicotine is actually an amazing mitochondrial uncoupler. And I'm not here to uh, talk about the benefits of nicotine. I'm not Dave Asprey. Um, But uh, nicotine is one of the most potent mitochondrial uncouplers we know of. Uh, And Nick, there are some fascinating studies looking at physicians in England who are smokers, who have a dramatic reduction in Parkinson's. There's very good studies that smokers seem to be much less likely to get Alzheimer's, but uh, nicotine is addictive in whatever form. And there's a whole lot better ways to uncouple your mitochondria, but than nicotine. But the point of it all is that nicotine smokers have benefits from the nicotine being an uncoupler. Don't get me wrong. Smoking is really good for producing cancer. Sorry about that. Yeah. (laughs) And there's other, yeah. And you don't have to, you don't have to smoke. Like there's, I know that there's sprays now and lozenges and things like that, that Dave is, I know Dave is a fan of the sprays. I think he's using now. Um, But I agree with you. I think that there's other ways because nicotine in and of itself is quite addictive. Oh and yeah. You, and you habituate to it after a while. Like you yeah, just need every, more every and more. Every tobacco company knows this. <laughs> right. Right. That's why uh, they so fun. No. <laughs> let, let's speak briefly about um, hot temperatures as well. So we talked about, and we had, and I bring this up because we had Dr. Uh, David Sinclair on the podcast maybe a year ago or so now. And we were talking about anti-aging. That's his, as you know, I, I know you're a friend of his, you know, this yeah. is a big body of his research is like NAD and how we can um, continue to reverse the aging process. And he views um, aging as a disease. And one of the things that he said, very similar to what you're talking about, is like cryotherapy, intermittent fasting, and changes in temperature. So like, you know, the extreme. So we talked about the cold. Can we talk about how heat um, can also be a powerful mitochondrial uncoupler as well? Yeah, actually, uh, in my in my days as a heart surgeon, I did a lot of research in heat shock proteins uh, to protect actually heart cells uh, during heart surgery. And we did a lot of fun experiments uh, that showed that if we activated heat shock proteins, that heart cells would be protected. Well, lo and behold, who would have known way back then because we couldn't measure it? We didn't even know about it. But heat shock proteins 
actually uncouple mitochondria. So it all comes full circle. Any, any stressors, any hormetic stressors actually work by uncoupling mitochondria. And that gets me to the Goldilocks rule. So that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger, now the old Nietzsche line. So these are hormetic stressors. So we've always thought of all of these things as stressing agents. Even there was a lot of talk that polyphenols are actually bad for you. Uh, but it turns out that we now know that all of these various compounds work their magic by uncoupling mitochondria. So like I wrote about years ago, hey, come and visit me in Palm Springs in the summer. You know, I'll give you some heat shock proteins. You walk outside at 120 degrees and damn, you'll uncouple your mitochondria. <laughs> and that actually may be why many cultures such as the Germans uh, love to come to Palm Springs in the summer when no one else will come uh, and just take in the heat. And that explains why the Scandinavians will hop into their, you know, into their ice bath and then immediately go into the sauna and back. So it's these stressors that uncouple their mitochondria. Who knew? Who knew? And, you know, I think that when we have, you know, books like this, which I think are going to shake things up and allow people to look at things in a different way, uh, this is how we make progress as a species and how we can live our best lives. And of course, you are a living, breathing example of this, uh, you know, eating in a two hour window for 20 years, going on your 23rd year. So um, I wanted to just take this opportunity to thank you again for coming on the show, for writing this book. Uh, tell my listeners where they can find the the book is called Unlocking the Keto Code. Where can people find it and where can people find more about you and your work? So wherever you get your books, you can pre-order now on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Please pre-order at your local bookstore. Uh, they need your help, uh, obviously, with all this mess. Uh, you can go to drgundry.com. You can pre-order it there. Uh, you can find me on the Dr. Gundry podcast and um, you can you can find me on YouTube. You can find me on Instagram. Uh, hopefully I, I appear in everybody's email box every morning. Um, so whatever. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again uh, for this book, for your time. I always enjoy spending time with you and having a chat. So thank you very much. And keep up the good work. And great to see you again. Thank you. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 